Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. All right, so amid COVID-19 and all the craziness in the world, it might be kind of easy to forget what summer is actually normally like. And my guess is that if you're in college or maybe you've recently graduated or even graduated within like the last 10 or 15 years, summers mean weddings. They mean bridal showers, baby showers, all of that. But uh, wow, weddings have certainly been thrown for a loop this summer. I'm helping a couple of my friends plan weddings this summer, and it has been just like this wild, crazy roller coaster of like, do we move the venue? Should we postpone? Do we cut the guest list? Who do we cut? And uh, I just so feel for brides. I'm sorry. I know planning a wedding is crazy enough, and then you throw a global pandemic on top of that, and it's a real wild time. Yeah, you know, I, I can't imagine because you have to think about you really want your grandparents there. You know, you want your whole family. You want your friends. And uh, it's just it's a big mess. But I will recommend anyone who is having their venue postponed or, or is stressed out about the big day, you know, just get married. Just do it. Elope if your religion allows it. it start your life now. Don't let the pandemic push your life because there's always going to be something that's going to hold you back. So there's always something good that can come out of trouble. And backyard weddings can be absolutely beautiful. (laughs) Get creative. All right. Well, and we do want to say, we want to know if if you're getting married this summer, we would love to give you a shout out on the show. So you can tweet at us either using the hashtag problematicwomen, or you can tweet or DM Lauren or myself, Lauren's on Twitter at Lauren Eliz Evans, or I'm on Twitter at Virginia underscore Allen five. We'll put those in the show notes, but we would love to wish you well on the show. So let us know. We want to celebrate with you. Virginia, was Virginia Allen one through four already taken? Um, I just like the number five. <laughs> my, one of my favorite numbers. <laughs> All right, Lauren, what do we have queued up for today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we discuss our favorite parts of Trump's Independence Day speech at Mount Rushmore and the media's less-than-friendly response. Amy Swearer joins us to discuss the Supreme Court's ruling in favor of religious liberty in the Little Sisters of the Poor case, and our colleague Laura Falcon gives us the lowdown on the new woke Netflix series, The Babysitter's Club. And, as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. So we are kicking off today's show with a rant discussion. That's what I have decided to term this part of the segment (laughs) on President Trump's Mount Rushmore speech. July 4th arrived in the midst of a lot of conflict this year. Statues are being torn down and defaced. Dozens of people have lost their lives in the midst of violent protests in the wake of George Floyd's death. And cancel culture is trying to erase everything and everyone who dares to celebrate America, our founding fathers, and traditional values. 
On July 3rd, President Trump delivered a speech in Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. Uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a huge live streaming nerd and I do most of the live streaming for the Daily Signal. So the night before the 4th of July, I was up streaming the speech. So I stayed up and I watched it live. And the speech really celebrated America and reminded us of America's history. But the president was also very clear and direct that the mob will not rule this nation. Trump praised the four presidents carved in the rock in Mount Rushmore, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt, and all that they did to establish and protect the freedoms that we enjoy today. Yeah, I really loved the fact that Trump, he pretty much gave like a history lesson during the speech. And of course, he talked about our first president, George Washington. Wow, George Washington's story, it really, really is incredible. He was the only president to ever be elected unanimously, and he didn't even want to be president. He went home after the Revolutionary War. He kind of wanted to live out the rest of his days in peace, but he was asked to return and preside over the Continental Congress. And he did so not out of a desire for for power, but really posterity. He wanted his children and his grandchildren to enjoy the peace and the freedoms that he had it. And it was out of that place of conviction that he chose to serve his country. Uh, one of my absolute favorite quotes from President Trump's speech was, to be American is to inherit the spirit of the most adventurous and confident people ever to walk the face of the earth. I want to like put that on a plaque up in my room or something. It's like, oh, so good. Um, but Lauren, the media has not exactly had a very positive approach to Trump's speech. No, they did not. And like I mentioned, I watched it live and it was, it was just a great celebration of America. I was, I had a, a couple Smirnoff, the new red, wine, blue, one carb, <laughs> Um, and I was just like, I was so hyped, Virginia. I think I was texting like everybody in my phone. I was just like, oh, this is the best speech I've ever heard him give. This is, you know, the messaging is great. I'm so inspired. And then I went to bed, right? And then I woke up the next morning and I, a couple people responded like, yeah, it was great. Have you seen what the New York Times said? And I was like, what, how, how in the world could they misconstrue that speech? Like, how in the world? And the truth is they basically lied. Uh, I'll read the New York Times headline is Trump's fiery attack at Mount Rushmore. Vox said Trump's Mount Rushmore speech shows he's still waging culture wars. And the New York Times says Trump's white version of history. And uh, like, I, I just had to sit there for a couple of minutes and be like, what are they trying to do? Like, and it's all a lie. They're, they're all trying to read in between the lines and misconstrue what he said. But no, it was a speech where he was honoring all Americans. And, and you know what? He even mentioned our, our checkered past and, and how America is a better country because it's able to get better and really celebrated a diverse group of Americans. And so, I mean, it just shows that the media doesn't care what Trump says. They just they want to make him look bad and they don't even care on America's birthday. They don't even care enough to try to, like, make America look good and celebrate our freedom and where we've come from. No, they, they are willing to discourage America and they were willing to make America look bad just to make Trump look bad. And it, it frustrates me beyond no end because this really should have been a unifying moment. There should have been a time where we all came together. Virginia, you read a, uh, a beautiful quote 
I want to read another quote that really stuck out to me from the speech. And it's a one line from the battle hymn of the Republic that Trump said. He said, as he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free while God is marching on. Like, how can that not just fire you up and and want to celebrate this great country? So, yeah, Lauren couldn't have said it better. (laughs) It's. Definitely a lesson. It's so important to be just aware of where where we get our news and uh, to go to the source. If you didn't watch the speech, watch it for yourself. It's on YouTube in full um, and you can draw your own conclusions on what President Trump said. And if you have thoughts, always feel free to tweet at us. We want to hear. And if you're going to watch the speech, make sure you start it from the beginning. He had a great introduction by Governor Christy Nome from South Dakota, who we've talked a couple times about on the show. She is just an up and comer in American politics, and just such a great woman. And, and you could really see on her face how proud she was to be an American and to have this great celebration in her home state. So definitely start it from the beginning and don't miss her remarks as well. All right, now stay tuned for our conversation with Amy Swearer on religious freedom and the Supreme Court's ruling on the Little Sisters of the Poor case. We are joined by Amy Swearer, Heritage Foundation Legal Fellow, to discuss the Supreme Court's recent ruling on the Little Sisters of the Poor case. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. The Little Sisters of the Poor, which is a religious order of nuns, their case was really about religious freedom and whether or not faith groups could operate under their religious convictions. The case dragged on for seven years. Amy, can you tell us a little bit more about the central conflict of this case and where it all began? Sure. So I I think the first thing we need to do is sort of backtrack and and give a, a history of how we got to this moment, because it is kind of a complicated case. So this goes all the way back to the Affordable Care Act, um, colloquially Obamacare, um, which did not actually require insurance plans to provide coverage for contraceptives. Um, But the Obama administration and sort of gap filling as executive agencies sometimes have the power to do, uh, promulgated a rule that would have required, with very, very few exceptions, employers to to cover all contraceptive methods approved by the FDA. And so this would have included uh, a number of contraceptive methods that uh, are morally opposed uh, for religious reasons by a number of, of religious orders and organizations. So this original rule, uh, this original mandate had a very narrow exemption um, and it was met with very, very strong objections on the grounds that it didn't really protect religious groups who were opposed to using either some or all of those mandated contraceptives. And so then there was sort of this back and forth with the Obama administration trying to develop, um, you know, better accommodations that that better suited uh, some of these objections, and and ultimately, what happened was the the Supreme Court in the Hobby Lobby case in 2014 held that the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act prohibited uh, the application of this this mandate, this requirement for providing contraceptive care for closely held corporations that that sort of fell into this closely held category. Um, So the department, uh, the Obama administration then issued a new regulation, um, but then it was challenged by some other religious employers, including Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, So this, again, this religious order. The court in 2016, again, you know, this is sort of a long ongoing case here, 
um, it didn't really resolve the issue, but sort of sent it back to the Obama administration to essentially say, look, you guys need to come to an agreement. We don't want to make an agreement for you. Sort of figure out a way, if you can, that accommodates the objections from the Little Sisters of the Poor and similar employers. Well, that didn't happen. Um, uh, Unfortunately, they weren't able to come to an agreement. And then in 2017, the Trump administration, of course, takes office and they took up the task of attempting to find that solution, of attempting to accommodate the religious liberty interests of organizations like Little Sisters of the Poor. And so what they did is they they took the original uh, Obama administration exemption and broadened it. They went through an entire rulemaking process um, and broadened that church exemption so that it was made available to non-government, basically any non-governmental employer like Little Sisters of the Poor who objected to providing certain types of contraceptive services. So that's how we got to where we are today because then what happened was instead of uh, you know finding individuals who opposed these exemptions, the states of Pennsylvania and New Jersey sued the Trump administration, essentially arguing that the Trump administration had no authority to make this broad exception to the, the contraceptive mandate and that it essentially didn't go through the right procedure. So it's more of a technical argument. Um, I mean, that the basis of this is a religious liberty interest that the Trump administration was trying to protect. Um, But the argument from Pennsylvania and that the lower court sort of took up here was whether or not the Trump administration did that in the right way. So I, I think one of the things that's fascinating and maybe a little bit odd about this case is that you have states suing this religious organization and when you kind of first hear of this case that it has to do uh you know with a religious group providing contraception to employees you think well there must have been some employee that you know was arguing hey it's my right to have this healthcare access but that's not the case it was the states of Pennsylvania and New Jersey that brought this suit that that's right um so they were essentially arguing again not that there was any particular employee who lost access that couldn't find it and was upset about it, um, but essentially that, you know, they as states had an interest in the federal government, uh, you know, doing this in the proper way, uh, following what's known as the Administrative Procedures Act, um, and that because of this, you know, they were able to have standing to sue to raise some of these more technical issues challenging the, the federal government's authority here. So, Amy, Justice Alito wrote uh, in a concurrent that he said, quote, we now send these cases back to the lower courts where the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the state of New Jersey are all but certain to pursue their argument that the current rule is flawed on yet another ground. So do you think that the sisters are facing the possibility of just another lawsuit because the ruling was not to the liking of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Yeah, I think this is the unfortunate reality that we have not seen the last of the Little Sisters of the Poor at the Supreme Court. Um, You you would think at some point the states would stop suing these poor nuns. Um, But as Justice Alito points out in the concurrence, um, there were, again, just some underlying issues that the court didn't get to in this case because, again, they decided it on more technical procedural grounds. Uh, But there is this underlying reality where 
um, very, very soon, I would imagine, uh, the states of, of Pennsylvania and New Jersey are going to go back to court to sue on other grounds to stop it, um, to essentially say that the current rule in, in technical terms is arbitrary and capricious, um, which is a very, very technical way of getting at this idea of um, they're going to argue that the Trump administration didn't reason through it well, that that it was promulgated, put forward on, on poorly reasoned grounds. Um, I mean, basically what they're going to argue is that the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act didn't require this. And, and because it didn't require this, the Trump administration shouldn't have done it in the first place. Um, and it's going to be, again, just this whole argument that looks like it's going to drag out again. And that's why uh, I think it's important if you read Justice Alito's concurring opinion, he actually would have gone on to decide that issue today um, to essentially save the little sisters of the poor another round in court. So he would have gone on um, to decide whether the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act um, compelled this exemption, because if that act compelled the Trump administration to protect the little sisters of the poor and grant them this religious liberty exemption, then, you know, the, the, the whole argument that it's arbitrary and capricious or not well-reasoned sort of goes out the window. Because, of course, if another um, federal statute required them to do this, it's not arbitrary, it's not capricious, it, it was required. Um, and so he would have decided that and saved the little sisters the, the whole hassle of doing this all over again. So I want to talk a little bit more about who the nuns are, because I think a lot of people who are listening might be thinking that, you know, why is the health care for the nuns such a big deal? But this isn't we're not talking about the nuns and their health insurance. The, the nuns, um, they take care of elderly people. Um, so they have a lot of nurses with them. Right. Right. So so the. The Little Sisters of the Poor, it's, it's a Catholic religious institution. Um, so it does, of course, have an order of nuns associated with it. Um, but it's broader than that sort of, if you think of it as an organization um, that runs um, care homes uh, for impoverished elderly people. And it, it's those individuals who are employed, who aren't nuns, but are still sort of employed for the Little Sisters of the Poor as the organization um, that, you know, theoretically might want this sort of contraceptive coverage. And that's really what's at issue here is not the nuns themselves, but the employees working for this Catholic religious organization, who, again, knew that this was a Catholic religious organization um, when, when they signed on. So, Amy, on Wednesday morning, Beckett Law Firm, who represented the sisters in this case, they tweeted, hashtag SCOTUS ruled seven to two that the little sisters are exempt from the contraceptive mandate and can continue serving the elderly poor without violating their conscience. Are you surprised that the ruling was seven to two? Well, so when you look at the ruling, uh, technically it was seven to two, but I think a better way of thinking about it is actually that it was five to two. Um, so you had two of the more liberal justices, uh, Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer, who concurred uh, in the the actual decision. So, so they agreed in in the court's final judgment that as of right now, on on these very technical grounds. The Trump administration had the authority to broaden this exemption and, and did it correctly. Uh, unfortunately, they also seemed to voice 
in their concurring opinion, this idea that if this comes back under the question of, of whether the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act required this, of whether this was arbitrary and capricious, they may not be so willing to rule with the, the conservative justices to protect religious liberty there. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a half win um, because you did get a 7-2 ruling altogether uh, in this case. But it, it seemed to suggest that, you know, on anything more than these technical grounds right before the court, um, that it, it may be more of a 5-4 closer decision on, on those questions. Um, so certainly it doesn't seem as though it's, it's a win today, uh, but it, it may be a more difficult decision coming up for the nuns. So speaking of the dissenters, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor were those two dissenting votes. And Ginsburg wrote, quote, today for the first time, the court casts totally aside countervailing rights and interests in its zeal to secure religious rights to the nth degree. Amy, my question is, isn't that the job of the Supreme Court is to uphold the Constitution and therefore defend America's First Amendment rights to religious freedom? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Justice Ginsburg and, and her dissent was joined by Justice Sotomayor as well. I think they get the First Amendment and, uh, you know, not, not just the First Amendment, but also the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. I, I think they misunderstand them. And I, I think not only do they misunderstand them, but I, I think they overplay what the consequences of this decision are. Um, so uh, Justice Ginsburg, for example, um, you know, goes on to note that the court's judgment today means that, uh, in her estimate, somewhere between 70,500 and 126,000 women would immediately lose access to no-cost contraceptive coverage. Um, but I, one, I'm, I'm not sure that's an accurate assessment. And two, like, again, none of those women actually brought suit in this case. Um, you know, th- these are all hypothetical women who still have alternate routes of, of getting contraceptive um, co- coverage. I, I mean, it, it's just a matter of whether or not a specific religious institution has to pay for it and, and has to participate in that. Um, again, so I, I just think she she gets the free exercise clause wrong in terms of what it protects. And I think, you know, again, I think you're right in suggesting that it's a misunderstanding of what the court's role is. I mean, the, the reason we have an enumerated First Amendment is because of the importance of protecting religious liberty, of protecting the free exercise of religion. Um, so at the, at the end of the day, that does trump you know, government interests in, in ensuring that women have access to, to certain contraceptive care. So, Amy, let's switch gears for a second and talk about Chief Justice John Roberts. So he he obviously voted and ruled with the majority in this case. But many people, I think even including some of the justices, have been really surprised by how he's been voting recently. He's really emerged as the new swing vote. Are you surprised by that? I'm not surprised that he has become the new swing vote. Um, you know, th- this is something that I, I think a lot of people have been aware of is he has always been, at least apparently always been, uh, very concerned about institutional integrity and, and sort of how the court looks, of, of what the public thinks about the court. Um, and so it, in that sense, he, he at various times in the past has come out certain ways on on cases, for example, in the original Obamacare case, where it just wasn't expected. I mean, I think this has become more consistent 
after the retirement of, of Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was the uh, earlier that who was considered the swing vote. Um, so I think some of the changing dynamics on the court has sort of left him in a place where he he might be thinking of other considerations. But I will say on, on religious liberty um, and, and free exercise cases, he, he has been less uh, he has been less inconsistent. I think he's been very, very consistent uh, in in these types of cases. Um, but I think you're right in saying that in a number of other uh, high profile cases, it's sort of been a question of, well, what is the chief going to do today and how is he going to yeah, you know, reason and support whatever vote he makes. Um, but I, but I think in, at least in terms of religious liberty, that has been less of a question, um, especially in this case. I, I don't think there were a lot of questions in these particular cases. So it's July. We're getting really to the end of the Supreme Court cases. Is there any that we should be looking out for in this session or early next year? There are three cases left uh, that the, the court should come out with this morning. Uh, at is the court has said that this will be the end of the term. There's the two Trump tax return cases, and also just a very interesting question uh, that essentially comes down to whether or not a third of Oklahoma is actually not part of the United States at all, um, but is Indian territory. Um, so that's that's a nice little you know interesting case that I think has been overlooked. Um, but certainly, uh, there are a number of cases, if you're interested in religious liberty, coming up in the next term uh, that the court has taken up, including one that has to do with um, state prohibitions on um, you know, working with uh, foster care and adoption agencies that uh, won't uh, refer adoptions to same-sex couples based on religious convictions. Um, so that is a case, um, again, in terms of religious liberty to be aware of that is is coming up in the next term. And that next term will start in October. For any of our listeners, if you are interested in the Supreme Court, any of those cases that Amy mentioned, be sure to check out Amy's podcast, SCOTUS 101. Um, Amy, you have also uh, just written a piece for The Daily Signal about the case that we talked about today. So definitely encourage our listeners to check that out as well and learn a little bit more. Amy, we just really appreciate you coming on and breaking down this pretty complex case. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right, now stay tuned for my conversation with Laura Falcon to discuss the remake of the classic Babysitter's Club that just released on Netflix and how wokeness has ruined it. But first, I want to tell you all about a truly great way to stay in the know on current events this summer. The Heritage Foundation offers multiple live webinars every week that dive into issues facing our nation today. What I love about these webinars is that they offer expert analysis on everything from the state of our economy, our relationship with China, Supreme Court rulings, and so much more. So go ahead and visit the events page on the Heritage Foundation website and start learning today. Welcome back to the show. Last week, in the shadow of the holiday weekend, Netflix released a reboot of the popular children's series, The Babysitter's Club. However, the new series is not as family-friendly as you may remember. To discuss, we have my colleague and a friend of the show, Laura Falcon, who watched the entire series so you and I don't have to. Welcome, Laura. <laughs> I am doing the common man's work. <laughs> of it. 
So I read the books as a child, but I will be honest, I do not remember pretty much any of it. Uh, As I was doing some research, I realized the main character's name was Christy. So that was kind of jogging some facts back. But you told me that you have a excellent memory of books that you've read as, as a child. So can you tell us what you remember from the original version? Yeah, way to make me sound super nerdy by my my great memory. But sound um, nerdy. <laughs> um, but it also like before I get into the actual books, a part of the nostalgia surrounding me reading the books was that my mom and I would go to the library I think, every two weeks, and I would spend no exaggeration at least half an hour to an hour on the Babysitter's Club shelf because there are over 200 books that have been published. And I would just scour the books trying to find like two or three books that I would read in about two weeks time. And then we would rinse and repeat, do it all over again. So there's a lot of, I have a lot of really good memories uh, that are tied to reading these books. And um, for me, the, the Babysitter's Club in a nutshell was an introduction to a lot of issues that I had never experienced as a kid. Like the effects of divorce and medical conditions like type one diabetes, which one of the girls has, but it more importantly introduced this notion of entrepreneurialism, which to me was the coolest thing. I didn't think that kids could start businesses. And in, in the babysitters club, a bunch of seventh graders start a, a babysitting club and they have a bunch of clients and they market and are, are trying to grow their business. And I was also a babysitter in middle school and high school. So to me, it really, it spoke a lot to, um, to my own background, but, um, I would say that, and dare I use the F word, um, the babysitters club embodied feminism in really the best way by showcasing women who are living and thriving by using their, their God-given talents and their interests. But then of course, Netflix just (laughs) swoops in and (laughs) takes that essence, that really, that pure, the, that innocence and that, that pureness of, of entrepreneurialism in children, and they just make a huge left turn into radical feminism, which, as I feel most of us already know, really has little to do with women. So I'm I'm glad you introduced where it started to go wrong with Netflix. Can you talk about a couple different scenes that were different than the original book? Yeah, I would say almost every single episode had a moment where it's just kind of a slap in the face of, of preachiness that was absolutely not present in the books. The, the one that was the most disturbing to me was the introduction of gender dysphoria in a child. And in that scene, Marianne, who is one of the babysitters, is looking after a boy who is now identifying, a, a six or seven-year-old boy, I should say, identifying as a girl. And this boy becomes sick and then she has to take him to the hospital. And the doctor and the nurse come in and the doctor is using male pronouns. And you can see Marianne getting all frustrated. And then she tells the doctor, you know, doctor, I need to see you outside and goes to lecture him on, on transgenderism and how he's belittling this child. And I, I would really like for you to take this blue gown and find a different color because he doesn't want a blue or she doesn't want a blue gown. And I'm like, are you kidding? This kid is a fever and you're lecturing this doctor on biology, your child. So that to me was really disturbing, especially considering how, big of an issue gender dysphoria in children is and how complex of an issue that it is. This just seems like they're being very callous in how they're approaching it. And this is series is 
targeted towards children on Netflix. It says it's recommended for kids ages 11 to 12. Why is it particularly problematic to show this preachiness from kids to other kids? So, well, I mean, on the notion of it being rated G, I actually ended up telling my brother that I, his daughter, so my niece, who's uh, seven years old, definitely should not be watching it because I feel like a show called Babysitter's Club especially when you know the books, it's it's a little jarring to think that kids can't watch said book. But on the preachiness coming from children, simply and bluntly put, kids aren't experts on these issues. And in order for children to understand what are complex issues like uh, homosexuality and gender dysphoria, uh, they have to be oversimplified. And we can't explain that nuance to kids because they're just not going to understand it. And I think that shows that this really interesting dichotomy that we're seeing between conservatives and leftists, where conservatives want to keep this away from kids. They want to keep these tough topics away from kids so that they can actually be kids, which is just a novel idea nowadays. While leftists are making it a point to target kids and are doing that by making kids be the the talking heads on these issues to start this indoctrination process. And then when you look at just our education system in general, we see that the left is specifically trying to target kids at a younger age so that they can get started on the bandwagon early. So why is this so disappointing to you as Laura Falcon? Oh, I mean, oh, there's so many ways. This, I, I, it, It's so funny. I was in a nostalgic mood, as you could probably imagine. So I'm expecting a walk down memory lane. And then instead, I'm being lectured to. And I think that boils down my frustration is when I'm choosing to watch a show for, I can be choosing to watch it for many reasons, but in this situation, I wanted that walk down memory lane and I didn't get it. And granted, Netflix is allowed to take a show and change it however they want. But it's just sad to me that we can't let an original show just embrace what it was all about in a way that it was originally good. And we're not letting kids be kids. And I feel like this is a growing problem where we're throwing these adult-like topics on children and we're seeing those effects by, you know, rising anxiety and depression rates amongst children and teens. There's a reason behind that. We shouldn't be pushing these big ideas and these um, really complex topics on kids who just aren't going to get it. Well, Laura, thank you so much for flagging this for Problematic Women and for watching the show so we didn't have to. Yeah, like I said, doing God's work here. (laughs) It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Louie, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Now it's that time, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... The Little Sisters of the Poor. We are so inspired by the way that they continue to fight for religious liberty, no matter what anybody throws at them. And I just wanted to give a a little background, even more than we we gave when talking to Amy, about who the Little Sisters of the Poor are. They are a group of nuns that operate 
homes for the elderly who are needy. Um, you know, these aren't the elderly that could live in any retirement home across the country. They might have special needs or they might not be able to afford a retirement home. They really look after the most vulnerable of our society. And, and it's not an American thing. They've been around uh, since the 1800s. And they're in lots of countries all around the world. Well, and the Heritage Foundation president and problematic woman, Kay Coles-James, she said it better than I think we could, Lauren. She wrote in a statement, it is truly heartbreaking that in a nation where we hold religious liberty as one of our highest ideals, government attempted to force religious organizations like the Little Sisters of the Poor to act against their most deeply held religious beliefs. Shame on those who created these mandates and thanks to those who fought so valiantly for so long to end them. This ruling preserves fundamental religious liberties and is good news for all Americans, regardless of faith. So a huge congratulations to the Little Sisters of the Poor on the Supreme Court win and congratulations for being our Problematic Women of the Week. All right. Well, we love hearing from you all on Twitter and we want you to feel free. You can always tweet at us with just thoughts or opinions about the show, things you want us to talk about using that hashtag problematic women. But this week's specific Twitter question is, what is a piece of life advice that has influenced you? I think we all need a little bit of positivity and hope right now. So we'd love to see some of those good pieces of advice that you all have received. Virginia, I think one that stuck out to me that when I was an intern, someone once told me, never apologize for something that you're not sorry for. I think as women, we're, you know, we always want to be, oh, I'm sorry, I, I got to ask you a question. Like, no, just if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't ever have to apologize for making your voice heard. <laughs> I love that, Lauren. And it very much fits your Enneagram 8 personality. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> but it is a solid piece of advice. So I can't wait to hear everyone else's. So make sure when you tweet at us, don't forget to use the hashtag problematic women. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of problematic women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.